Welcome to the Real Estate Syndication Show. Whether you are a seasoned investor or building a new real estate business, this is the show for you. Whitney Sewell talks to top experts in the business. Our goal is to help you master real estate syndication. And now your host, Whitney Sewell. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, our guest is Jerome Maldonado. Thanks for being on the show, Jerome. Whitney, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure being here. Good morning to you. Yeah, Jerome, I'm honored to have you on the show and just get to know you a little bit before we got started. You've got just a vast array of experience and expertise. I know you can add a ton of value to our listeners today, but Jerome is a highly successful real estate investor, business owner, salesman, coach, and speaker. Over the span of his 20-year career, Jerome has built an eight-figure empire and has mentored people from around the world in sales, real estate, and business. His unique ability to streamline results is what makes Jerome's training high in demand as his method Methods are not found anywhere but inside his teachings. Drum, welcome to the show. Again, honored to have you on and welcome. Give us a little about that 20-year history, and I know you shared a little bit with me beforehand. I think it'd be helpful for the listeners to hear part of that, and then let's jump into some of your expertise that's going to help them in their business. So I started off in general business. I was in direct sales, network marketing for over five years. And although I struggled for the first three years of that, I was able to hit one of the top levels of the company after about three and a half years. And in my young 20s, I was making about $250,000 a year. And in the early 90s, that was a big deal. That was a lot of money. And in 1998, the FTC restructured some stuff, pulled out the wool from under us, and we were left without an opportunity. And so by accident, I landed up in construction of all things And it's been an immensely successful company. I didn't know anything about construction, but I knew how to market a business. And so we were able to take that company and streamline it in 12 months. And we were able to make seven figures our first year. And because of the success that we had through the construction company, we started dabbling in real estate because I wanted assets. I wanted something that no matter what happened in life, I had something tangible. So I started buying residential rental homes in 1998. So I'm dating myself back, right? But I soon found that residential rental homes wasn't what I really loved. And I started getting into commercial buildings and I got into small retail buildings starting in 1999, 2000. And we started buying them, doing value add to renovating them, leasing them. And I utilized one for my office and our construction yard. And because of the success of the first one, I did a second, then a third one. And then we started building them. And so I have a lot of real estate development experience. Retail was really good to us all the way to 2008 when things shifted because of the financial and economic crisis. And we slowly started pulling out of retail, although we still own some retail today, smaller sector retail. We got into multifamily. We started getting into big conversions, industrial warehouse space, and hotel conversions. And that kind of leads us to the current market sectors that we're in today. And we're still building and developing. We're still running our construction company. So in a nutshell, Whitney, that's kind of a 20 plus year history and a real quick rendition there. Yeah, no, you've done a lot in real estate, no doubt about it. And it's neat how you got into it and buying smaller homes or whatever, but found out that that wasn't for you. And now I know you all are focused on hotel conversions and warehouses. Can you talk through that a little bit and why that's your focus versus other types of real estate? So two reasons. We're doing industrial warehouse space and we're doing hotel conversions. And anytime a market sector gets super stimulated, like multifamily, you know, I noticed even by 2018, I was starting a multifamily in 2000 started dabbling in fourplexes and mass fourplexes in 2010. But 
really in 2015 is where it became really apparent that I needed a lot of doors and I wanted, and I had the desire to have a lot, but really quick into 2018, I started seeing the escalation of the prices and I got really worried about the low cap rates and my ROI, my internal rate of return, as well as my cash on cash return. And since we had never acquired investors until about the 2017, 2018, it didn't matter as much when I was doing it on my own, as long as I had a business structure that worked internally for us, right? But when we started reaching out and getting capital from other people, it started being, being a bigger deal. We wanted to make sure that we were able to fund these people with returns that made sense. And not knowing where the market was going to go, I started looking at other sectors that I could get creative with. And that's what always made our business profitable was thinking outside the box. And so before everybody was thinking about, hey, I can buy a hotel, I can convert this thing into a multifamily apartment complex, we started pushing on that concept, knowing that we could get a larger internal rate of return, but also a cash on cash return for our investors where we could pick something up, run it as a hotel temporarily while we were renovating it into an apartment complex, get them a small modest return, but then stabilize that thing, not only at an eight cap, but we've been successful stabilizing those things at even 12 caps and above, and then giving them a nice internal rate of return, which has been a win-win situation, not only for us, but for the people that we work with and that are investing with us. And so that's the reason we've gotten into the hotel sector. Now, industrial warehouse space was just more of a need that needed to be serviced because of the growth of e-commerce and the death of retail, right? And so I always tell people where there's times of distress, there's mass opportunity. You just have to figure out how you pick up the pieces and position yourself to take advantage of it. So in 2018, I partnered up with Ty Lopez and Dr. Alex Mir. They were doing e-commerce brands. And with tylopez.com, they started purchasing Dress Barn. And then we came in as minority partners into Model Sporting Goods, Dress Barn, Pier One Imports, Radio Shack, and what other brands do we own now? So we have Linen and Things and Steinmark. And they started repositioning these. And so Ty came to me and said, hey, Jerome, what if we built a portfolio of industrial warehouse spaces to service the needs of the growth of e-commerce? And knowing that billions of square feet were going to be needed nationwide, we started just coming in and acquiring hundreds of thousands of square feet. And now we're pushing to, towards a million square feet of industrial warehouse space just to service all of the need for industrial warehouse for distribution of e-commerce and the growth of e-commerce over the last several years and moving into the future. How are you preparing yourself when you go to move into a different sector like you're talking about? You did different types of real estate, then you moved into hotel conversions and warehouses. Tell me about how you gain that confidence to move into that new sector. We want to be able to do that, right? We want to be able to move and we want to be able to go to places, you know, wherever the industry's thriving or right before it thrives anyway. But how do you build your team fast enough to do those things and to do them well? We don't build them overnight, but they're slow and methodical. I know a lot of people think, like I talk about it in a nutshell, and it seems like the pivot happens overnight and that this team is just built and we're just moving into these sectors. And in all reality, sometimes we don't even know. What we start doing is we just know that one sector is getting leveraged, right? And so when we see the warning signs that something's getting leveraged, we sit back and I do what everybody does. I scratch my head and go, damn, I can't purchase this for... X amount of dollars and feel confident that I'm going to make a return that I can promise people, right? And so I slowly start doing is I just start continue shopping things and I start listening. And that's where my I start broadening my scope of what I listen to and what I'm paying attention to in the world, because it's real important at that point in time. You know, when things are going really well and you get focused, I think it's really important to stay tunnel vision and stay focused on your goals and what you're doing. But your tunnel vision and you get to a point where most people forget to do is pick their head up and realize when things are overstimulated. So they continue to just drive and drive and drive. 
And that's what landed up getting us in a position where we were over leveraged in 2008. And although we didn't lose any assets, although we didn't lose money, we were stressed out for about five years, just trying to press out of the 2008 Mm. economic recession and reposition ourselves. And so I promised myself after that, that I would never let myself get into that position again, that I was always going to stay creative and stay on top of things because as entrepreneurs and business people, we get lazy. I always say you feed the fat horse, the fat horse doesn't go no place, right? It stays right there. And so I became the fat horse. And I realized it and I sat back going, damn, I should have stayed progressive in what I was doing and always looking for market changes. And so I urge people to continue looking, to keep their blinders open when it's time to keep the blinders open and then shut them when it's time to shut them. But when you see the warning signs on the wall, we start to look and pivot a little bit now. And sometimes we don't know what that pivot's going to be. We just test different market sectors and we start underwriting different deals And the more you're active in the market, right, the more you're continually underwriting deals, even if you don't know if they're profitable, you're just underwriting them. That's truly how we figure things out. Because then all of a sudden, I'll start underwriting deals and all of a sudden, a light will shine on me and I'll say, oh, shit, I didn't realize there was this much profitability in this market sector. And by doing that, it allows me to pivot and then slowly I test it. So I do what I call a case study and I'll buy something that seems to be the right amount of doors or the right amount, the right square footage. And then I pre-lease it before actually taking it down during my due diligence period. And I just test the market for it. And if I don't get no traction on it, then I withdraw. Sometimes I'll lose a little earnest money, but I would draw from it and just dust my hands off and go on to the next deal. Whereas other times, if I get traction and I get a good receptive feedback from people, then I move with it. And that takes a year, sometimes two years to actually pivot and do that stuff. So it doesn't happen overnight. That's an interesting thought. I mean, test the market before you actually close on it, right? Or test that specific property even. Yeah, we do it all the time. And so people always get in a rush to close on stuff. And I get brokers and wholesalers and these guys pressing me saying, you drove me, you got to come in. We got to close on this fast. And that's my first warning sign where I just kind of withdraw and say, okay, it's not for me. Just go on to the next guy. I'm not closing in two weeks and I'm not going to press on that. I, my stuff is slow and methodical. I need to feel that feel good feeling where I have that little sense of excitement where it's motivating and driving for me to move forward. But I have that pronounced feeling of confidence that I know it's the right deal. And so I'm a slow driver when it comes to purchasing real estate. And then once I know it's the right deal, then I plow forward fast. But I am slow and methodical when it comes to underwriting and purchasing deals. You are now also partnering with syndicators. You're adding a ton of value to operators that may have other deals as well. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because I know a lot of that's your ability to incorporate systems and processes and do that well. And how have you done that? You know, I didn't even realize what we were bringing to the table as much until I started actually partnering with other syndicators, right? Since we self-funded a lot of our deals, we had a financial beast of a construction company that's been funding a lot of our deals for as many years. But no matter how well you do, at some point in time, you run out of capital. There's only so many deals you can take down alone. Well, when we started partnering with other syndicators and learning the syndication world a few years back, I started noticing that these guys were great at raising capital. They were great at finding deals and underwriting deals, but where they were big, even a big gap and a a lot of profit margin on the table was in the renovation sector and how they managed the value add or the new development or the redevelopment of whatever they were doing. And I started showing up trying to be the nice partner, right? Where you show up to a job site and respect everybody's well-being and what they were doing in the methodical way of what they did. And I started noticing that there was a ton of loose strings being in the construction industry and running. And when I started in the construction industry, the one thing that helped me, Whitney, is I told myself when I was a kid, 
I was told that if I didn't go get a good education, I was going to land up in construction because that's where people without an education land up, right? So I was taught that's where not smart people land up that are uneducated. Little did I know there was so much profitability in construction. So early years to overcome the mindset that was set in, instilled into me by my parents that only blue collar, non-educated people got into construction. I said, well, shoot, I don't want to be a blue collar, non-educated person. I'm educated. I went to college. I want to be an educated blue collar person. And so I said, I'm going to run my construction company like a white collar professional. I'm going to take a blue collar industry and I'm going to set it up and structure it like a white collar professional. because I want to do business with people who have money. And that's the white collar professionals. At least that was in my mind back in those days. So the systems that I created back in the late 90s, I didn't realize how advantageous they were going to be 20 plus years later in the syndication world and being able to come in and hold larger profitability because of the systems and the direction how we manage value add properties and redevelopment and development properties. And so I'd sit back and say, okay, guys, refigure all this stuff, stop and halt the construction. We have, excuse my friend, but we have a shit show going on here. Let's fix this. And then we come in, I get all the subcontracts. I have a meeting with a general contract and say, okay, look, this is how we're going to run the project. This is how it needs to run. We have 180 doors. We need to start renovating 20 at a time. We're still running a hotel here. This side stays hotel. This side gets renovated. All the shit comes out of the hotel rooms and we put them in pods. We want clean working sectors. And we go in and we 20 rooms and we do them in phases. We go five phases. We go excavation, framing, rough in, drywall and paint, trim out. We're done. And so you do phase one. And when phase one is done here, you start 20 more. Phase one here, you start phase two here. And phase one's done here. You take your rough in guys, you go here. And so we just systematically set this stuff up so that you don't have this cluster of stuff. Cause I just didn't understand what people were doing. They would have appliances sitting inside storage. And I'm sitting back going, why would you have that stuff? It's you're six months from there. Why do you have this? So anyways, we were able to clean up the processes and syndicators love us because I can go in and help them clean things up, save on labor and on maybe an $8 million deal, make them on their bottom line, another half million dollars in profit just from what they've saved on labor and mismanagement of value add stuff, which is awesome. Often we don't see that value that we're missing out on, right? We don't see that of just having a better process. And like you mentioned, having appliances sitting around, that's one example when we don't need them for six more months. They're in the way or getting damaged or having moved them numerous times. All that takes time, right, to do those things because of a lack of planning. Maybe you can highlight just a couple things there that the operator that's listening could do much better to improve their process for the renovation? They need to have a plan, right? So for any operator, you have to have a plan. And I urge them not to rely on the general contractor to create that plan for them. I think the biggest mistake they make is they interview these people. Although they may be good people, they're a good company, they're going to get it done, right? I don't want to discredit the contractors that are working to it, but it doesn't mean that they're a professional in management, you know? And so every operator should have a plan and they should have a pre-construction meeting and then they should have follow-up meetings weekly. And I would urge each of them to do this. Where I learned this from is in commercial and government projects. You know, $7 million a year of our business comes from government projects. And anytime something goes out to bid, there's a pre-bid meeting. And we all sit down as general contractors. We go in and they brief us on everything that they're doing. We meet the architects, the engineers. We meet everybody. The engineers and the architects tell us what their expectations are and what they want to see out of the project. 
Then once we go in, we deal with the project manager. Even though we're the general contractor, I have my own project manager. They have their own project manager. And so operators need to become their own project manager and not feel like they're stopping on anybody's toes, even if they're not a construction professional. But they need to understand processes and systems that they set in place for redevelopment and for value-add projects, just so that they can get things done in a more timely and a more professional fashion. So that's what I would urge every operator to do. No, great advice. No doubt about it. You know, one thing that we talked about before we started recording, I wanted you to have a couple minutes to highlight for the listener because I think it's so important. And most of the time it does not happen and gets people in trouble long term. But just being able to structure your lifestyle on low debt and what that's done for you and your wife long term, or even having some debt free, you know, real estate, things like that, or how your thoughts on that. But it seems like that happened many years ago, and that's helped long term. But could you elaborate? So it's funny, like all of us get started young, even if you don't get started young, I think every time you get started, and you start making it right, like you start making more money than you've ever made in your life. What's the first thing that people do Whitney? Buy a house, they go buy a big house, or they go buy a fancy car. So I did it right. In my young 20s, I started doing well, I went and bought a brand new Range Rover, bought a lake house. And when things got pulled out from underneath me, I lost it. And so I sat back and thought, okay, I never want to be in this position. It's the worst feeling in the world to feel like you're moving forward so handsomely in your life. And then all of a sudden it just gets pulled out from underneath you. And then you think you're awesome, right? You think that you have life all figured out and then the wool gets pulled out from underneath you and you sit back and scratch your head and say, oh my God, I wasn't as great as I thought I was. I need to refigure this. And so at a young age, when we started doing well for the second time, I told my wife, I said, you know, I never want to be in that position again. I want to create a lifestyle that no matter what happens, that we can live off of $4,000 a month. And obviously, this was in the late 90s when I said this. And so $4,000 a month then, what it is now is completely different. But lo and behold, we still have a lifestyle that if today everything was stripped from us, we could still live on $4,000 a month and pay our personal debt. And so there's a little catch-20 to everything, right? So there's good debt and bad debt. Good debt is debt that we take on that is cash producing and it pays for itself. The asset pays for itself and it gives you cash flow. And then there's bad debt, cars, automobiles, fancy trips, stuff like that. Now, you need a little bit of that stuff because I believe in the dopamine and the excitement that it gives you to motivate you to continue working. But you have to do it. I do it based on benchmarks of success. You know, So when I buy the first Rolex, it was when I made my first million dollars, right? And I knew I was a millionaire. I knew I made my first million dollars. It was the first time I bought my first Rolex. When I went out and I closed on one of my big projects, I had a residential subdivision. I had four homes to completion. I did. I went and bought my second one, right? And so it benchmarks, I'll go out and buy little bits and pieces of success, but I've never put myself in a position where I started buying fancy cars and fancy homes before I needed them. I built a house, it was 2,600 square feet. I got into that house, put a lot of money down. I put like $75,000 down on a $225,000 house. And I put about $60,000 worth of renovations into it. And they were cash renovations. So I had a very modest house payment of like $1,500 a month. And I always bought my cars cash. In fact, when I bought my construction company, I got my dealer's license and I started buying work trucks um, at the auctions to be able to save on that stuff. And it was because I never wanted to be over debted on bad debt. And so when I started getting into real estate, I did start leveraging debt, but it was only debt that would service itself, right? So it was only debt that it couldn't pay for its own asset. I didn't want it. I wanted something that was going to produce income and was going to pay for itself, or at least had that potential, right? We bought a lot of distressed property, but we would buy it in lieu of knowing where we were going over the course of six months and to be able to get that cash flow back in. And so we lived in that house for 18 years. And 
18 years later, there was times we wanted to go out and build ourselves a million dollar home, but the timing wasn't right. And it just wasn't set up right. And I just didn't feel good about it. And sometimes when we push, we got pushed back from circumstances in life. And thankfully and rightfully so we did. And so like I sit now in over an 8,000 square foot home and it's over a $2 million home, but I didn't pay $2 million for it. I bought it out of bankruptcy. I did the renovations I needed to. And I live in a 2.3 or $2.4 million home at a very small marginal cost that I paid for it because I know how to buy real estate. I know how to do things right. And I waited till the right time. And I invested all my liquid capital to feed the horse, to feed the cow, right? To just feed the beast and get my business going. And I never touched that capital. I used my business, the cash flow from my business to live. And I used every penny that I had coming in from flipping and turning properties into feeding the beast and making it grow. And that's what we did in order to get to where we are today and how we were able to get to, from nothing to something that I consider to be a pretty handsome return on our investment and a nice, handsome portfolio of real estate that we own today. Great advice. Very well said. I just think that part right there, I personally, a lot of us should go back and just listen to again to think through just the debt piece. I've had so many questions about that from a lot of listeners and then just a lot of people that I know how to feel about debt, right? Your tax advisor says you need some debt or you need to go buy a vehicle or you need to go do this to minimize your tax burden. But then again, how to feel about that debt, you know, vehicle debt versus a real estate debt. And like you said, a debt that could service itself. That's a great way to think about it. Thank you for listening to the show today. I wanted to continue the conversation with Jerome. We were having a great conversation. He's an amazing entrepreneur and real estate investor. So we continued the conversation into tomorrow's episode. I look forward to seeing you there. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Syndication Show, brought to you by LifeBridge Capital. LifeBridge Capital works with investors nationwide to invest in real estate, while also donating 50% of its profits to assist parents who are committing to adoption. LifeBridge Capital, making a difference, one investor and one child at a time. Connect online at www.lifebridgecapital.com for free material and videos to further your success.